Welcome to another Biota Podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of chatting once again with a newly revitalized, hopefully COVID-free Emmy Khan. Emmy, how are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you very much. Yes, COVID-free indeed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I must have got it. I mean, thankfully, I'm fine now. Um, I must have got it in Tokyo. So, so just for, for context, I've been at the Artificial Life Conference in uh, Sapporo, uh, a little over two weeks ago, I think now, uh, and and it was fine. Um, uh, and then you know Tokyo is what Tokyo is, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I think it was just uh, I tried my best uh, to avoid it, uh, but I think it's it's one of those things that happens. Have you been to Japan before? I went. So I went um, on a leisurely visit with with two of my sisters back in 2019. Interesting. Was, yeah, it was really nice. So we started in. Uh, Tokyo and, and sort of made our way westbound all the way to, to Hiroshima and, and then back again. Mm. So actually, it was my first time back um, in Japan since then, obviously because of, of, of COVID nineteen and, and various travel restrictions. Uh, but actually, my first time in, in Sapporo and, and the Hokkaido region in general. Um, it was beautiful. I mean, I mean, from what I understand, uh, Sapporo is, is quite uh, popular for its ski resorts mm. um, and over winter. Uh, obviously, we're not going to get people skiing at, at this time. And um, I mean, certainly, certainly not when I was there. It was it was so hot. It was unbelievable. Interesting. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, so sorry. Where was that? Yeah. So so it was it was really hot. Uh, but actually, uh, Hokkaido and, and uh, Sapporo are, are really beautiful. Yeah. Mm. It's a shame I didn't get to you know explore as much as I wanted uh, or, or could have really, uh, but you know the, the week I was there was was, was certainly ple- pleasurable. Yeah, Japan's one of those places that I really have to visit, and I've heard that you can actually take children there. So with my daughters, I think they'll probably reach a critical age and we'll all go as a family. I have a friend who actually I used to work with in Las Vegas, who is married to a Japanese woman, has two uh, sons, who now lives in Japan full time. And he was quite an impactful fellow in my life and certainly watching him learn Japanese and watching him get, I guess the term might be ensconced or whatever the terminology is mm-hmm. in the language and the culture and everything was just amazing to see. And then obviously he now lives there. So it is a place that I've wanted to visit and for a variety of different reasons. I mean, the, the A-life culture in Japan is relatively unique. Can you talk a little bit to that? Um, I, I mean, it's exactly as you said. It, it's really unique in that I think... I mean, maybe you might have a different perspective of this, given sort of how experienced you are in the field as well. But it feels like artificial life is just taken a little bit more seriously as its own discipline. Um, I think, you know, we've had these conversations before about artificial life being mostly a a hobbyist endeavor, Uh, even if, you know, you are a capital S scientist uh, and it is your day to day job, you still have to. Um, work your research uh, and, and, and massage it in a way that fits in with artificial life because you know you're not mostly going to get funding for things that are primarily artificial life where in Japan it seems to be you know artificial life is is the norm I was speaking to someone I think who did a master's in artificial life in Japan mm. uh, I believe in the late 90s or early 2000s and, mm. and I made a comment on you know that's quite a rare thing to, to actually have something that is explicitly artificial life as, as a discipline to, to study is, is quite rare um and i think that's it and i think it is quite telling uh in the type of research that is coming out and the type of things that they are working on um uh, one of the 
uh, one of the uh, the keynote speakers, so Jun Tani, I think, has been quite involved with artificial life for a number of years, but now has found applications in in robotics. Mm. Uh, and, and I think this is one of the challenges as well that, that we have uh, in artificial life uh, is is how to make it. How do we make it tangible? How do we make it matter to people who are going to give us funding? And and I think people in Japan have found because because of the because of the head start that they have almost in 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 taking it seriously, the discipline from such uh, an an early stage of their career, um, are able to find those niches where where these types of of models and things can be applied. Uh, and and that, that's what it feels like. I think the culture there just seems a little bit nicer. There is. Certainly. You know, I've, I've made a comment bef- um, there and also before as well about you know how artificial life. They have an air life Japan. I think it's a workshop, mm. but you know, the, the, I, I from what I can tell, those types of you know local workshops and and, and meetups don't really happen in other pockets of the globe. Uh, so, so yeah, that that was my perspective on it. The relationship with industry and the culture of technology are both. I mean, I'd say this is someone who's never been to Japan, but I. For example, I was reflecting, Bruce Damer and I used to live relatively close to one another. Bruce had a collection of writing, well, actually a collection of books that used to belong to Timothy Leary. We might have an opportunity to talk about psychedelics in this recording, we might not. But um, he had a series of artificial life books from Japan, specifically, from the mid to, probably mid to, maybe early to late 80s of that kind of time frame. And looking through them, it made me realise that they had a culture, a different culture of technology, a different culture of the hope and aspirations, but also the underlying humanity of technology, which I think is very interesting, particularly when you talk about things like robotics. And certainly as a remote observer, it immediately kind of gauged with me that the Japanese understanding of A-life was a different cultural phenomena, which probably needed to be understood very differently as how it was adopted first in industry but also how they have a long-standing culture of, you know, automata and cyborgs and a cultural history of, you know, the embodiment of technology, which was distinctly different, certainly, to this country, even though the US has a very strong (laughs) culture of technology, obviously. But it's a very distinctly different thing to what I saw just in these little vistas and to the kind of Japanese understanding of A-Life. And certainly, I haven't met that many Japanese A-Life academics, but when I have, They've always had a distinct perspective on this thing, which I find really interesting and really unique. I Maybe one year I might actually be able to go to one of these A-Life workshops because I think certainly my culture and my perspective is very different again from the US culture and perspective. And I'm wondering if I would find kindred folk in Japan. Yeah, no, I think that the, the point that you made, um, particularly with the, with the cyborgs and the automata, um, embedded in... You know, you're deeply in, in in culture, in society, in almost religion as well, with, with sort of the Zen Buddhist roots. Mm. In, in that, the lines between life and non-life, and what is living and not living, is is a bit more blurred, uh, and it's a bit more um, open-ended and exploratory. So, as I'm, you know, one of the notes I've got here that that I had to remind myself of was actually the theme of the conference was was ghost in the machine. Yes, certainly. Um, yeah, so you, you may be familiar with just the people. A great movie, a great movie, well worth seeing. I think it's one of these kind of fundamentals of A-Life movies that are really important to think about. I mean, we we, we joked about The Terminator, <laughs> which yeah. is really the US, you know, a culture of A-Life in, in descriptive form. But I think the nature of Ghost in the Machine, it's called Ghost in the Shell, I think, or Ghost in the Machine. I think well, it's yeah, been so released under Yeah, sorry, yeah. 
so yeah, continue. Sorry, but no. So this was exactly the point that I was going to make. Was was Ghost in the Machine was was sort of this term that was coined by this British philosopher Gilbert Ryle. Um, mm. So these are all things that I I learned over the conferences, which I'm sharing with you. So it was yeah, it was a criticism against uh, the the Cartesian dualism that the mind and the body are separate entities. Mm. So instead, trying to give the focus back on the mind being inseparable from the physical uh, and the material properties and Very also the, the body. So yeah, yeah so and and that then you know that 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 term uh, was then the inspiration for Ghost in the Shell, which which mm-hmm. was in the nineties, and and it's that it's 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 that idea of embedding minds and consciousness into mechanical bodies uh, all of this is is deeply you know this is the type of the type of ideas and the type of um thoughts that that people are, are being brought up with and it's a natural part of their conversations and their day-to-day and, and i think that feeds heavily into the type of research and the way that you think about certain things like life and and, and the lines between living and non-living as you get older so any stand-up papers, any stand-out ideas, anything? I mean, obviously, we talked a little bit about A-Life in Japan, but anything that you caught in the conference? That Yeah, I mean, I mean, so how long would you like to talk about this? Because we can go in That's why we're recording early, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, the first thing to know, this was the, the first physical conference since the pandemic. Interesting. Um, and I think... What, what I what I learned, actually, um, so it was a hybrid conference, but actually this... And this this approach of doing hybrid for airlife wasn't new. They actually did it before the pandemic, mm. uh, 2019, 2018, mm-hmm. one of those years. Um, and, and I was I, I wasn't sure about how many people would actually turn up to the conference. Uh, bearing in mind, you know, it is in Japan. Then mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's peak season in Japan, and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I think yeah, we had a really good turnout. I think there was 250 people there or so. Gosh, that is uh, good. That's a real conference. In, yeah, yeah. in, in physical, yeah, in physical. And, and then, um, you know, some more people online as well. Uh, so I think, you know, first and foremost, a huge congratulations in, is in order to the organizers and the volunteers. Certainly. Because they put on a, a really great, really great conference. Um, in terms of standout papers, now, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a few sort of different ideas, but I just want to touch upon on this idea of the ghost and the machine mm. and, and this idea of... You know, I, I've seen the conference, I've seen the conference uh, theme, and it mm-hmm. is this idea of, of consciousness and mind. And, and, you know, initially I was a little bit sceptical, given the trend in artificial intelligence at the moment, you mm-hmm. know, in descriptions of consciousness and sentience, mm-hmm. especially Certainly. things like large language models, chat GPT and so on. Um, I wasn't sure, actually, if, if artificial life was going to start descending into some of this circular discussion that was happening in those fields. Well, there are a number of uh, luminaries that are actually part of ChatGPT, well, part of OpenAI, and have actually, if they're not currently contributing to OpenAI, are uh, have historically had connections with OpenAI. The, the roots of a life in um, the you know the large language models and ChatGPT, but also just looking at the neural network models that many of these folks were designing before they came to OpenAI. Even when they worked for Uber and things like this, I'm probably yep. name dropping without name dropping by saying that. Yeah, but it, it's interesting how we almost have a responsibility, a philosophical responsibility, which is part of my conversation with Steve Grand, associated with owning certain aspects of this thing and having a culture where we can talk about this thing in an advancing fashion, as opposed to the folks on YouTube that just have YouTube channels and are now AI experts accordingly. So, sorry, I'll let you continue. 
No, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and, and I think I, I think sort of my apprehension was was less so about wanting to have the discussions, but more about, you know, is is this just the theme because it's now the, the topic du jour? Like, mm-hmm. you know, is this, the, is this the cool thing to talk about? Uh, but I think, yeah, I mean, from my own personal perspective, I, I think that my apprehension around the discussions around consciousness and around that type of phenomenology uh, comes from them being disembodied AI models. Uh, but actually, <laughs> a, a lot of the a lot of the focus on the talks at AirLife did a really good job of grounding that phenomenology in, in physical material and embodied mm-hmm. properties. Um, and actually, Anil Seth uh, from the University of Sussex, uh, he's mm-hmm. written a couple of books. Actually, he's a conscious, he's a yeah, just consciousness science research. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of emphasised me. He presented this this Venn diagram of consciousness, um, and if you can imagine, you know, there's you know three circles. You've got life, you have consciousness, and then you have intelligence. And he 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 emphasised the point that you know consciousness necessarily overlaps more with life than it does with strictly intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if we're trying to study or build artificial consciousness, then that necessarily requires artificial life. Uh, but not necessarily artificial consciousness. And it, it was that sort of framing that, that made me think, okay, you know, this type of conversation now has a place at the table here. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, I, and and it, it was really interesting because we had a plethora of, of, of keynotes and a, a, a spectrum of, of conversation and, and scales at which this conversation was happening. So everything from, you know, say basal cognition, so, mm-hmm. you know, evolutionary history mm-hmm. of, problem-solving capabilities, you know, cellular and subcellular forms, uh, so things like bacteria and somatic cells. Interesting. And, and, and all, all the way up to neural correlates of consciousness and, and various theories around that, and then trying to describe, you know, this qualia of, of quote-unquote, what it is like to be something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that was that was a really, a really interesting paradigm shift to me, because now we've gone from you know, you may have different thoughts about this, but, you know, artificial life has now got this new lens in it where we, we've studied properties of living systems in, in, and then we've gone to, you know, understanding and modeling various aspects of life. And now, you know, at least in this conference, it, it was about the quality of life. It was about mm. the phenomenology of life. And I mm. think that's a really interesting sort of layer above that might be complementary to, to, you know, some of these lower order things that we're also trying to, to model and understand as well. Fascinating stuff. I mean, when I reflect, I've been to one ALF conference. I met Tim Taylor, actually, the ALF conference. Shout out to Tim. Um, yeah. When I attended it, I think it was in 2012 in, where was it? East Lansing, Michigan, which is a very, I'm not sure if you've ever been to, well, if you've ever spent any time in the US, but East Lansing, yeah. Michigan is a very strange town. Like, literally, uh, one side of it is old car factories that have been demolished and are just literally cement slabs that go on for multiple city blocks. And then you have this strange relationship with almost a ghetto-like area. And then you step across, literally step across the road into the university and see amazing university funding <laughs> all together. <laughs> anyway, the thing that really excited me about attending an ALF conference, I mean, I'm I'm an extreme case. I very rarely have an opportunity to be an ALF person. I've had, for example, my simulation displayed by Apple Computer, but at a conference or multiple conferences, actually, that I couldn't attend. So I've had this relationship with even my work being displayed remotely, which makes it very difficult. And the ability to, well, I've spoken to Mark Pateau repeatedly, but to meet him, Steen Rasmussen, a, a wide variety of people like luminaries in the field 
was just absolutely jaw-dropping for me. I'm assuming you've been to a few of these things and it's not quite as amazing for you. But what, what stood out in terms of the people you met with and chat with at the conference? So it's, it's really interesting you say that because this was actually my first physical conference. Oh, interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah, so I... Uh, um, I officially, I guess, quote unquote, was uh, sort of entered into the community at 2020. So that was actually the first um, uh, online conference. Interesting. Uh, so, so actually, what I've done over the years is, is create a network of of uh, peers and collaborators and, mm-hmm. and people that I've been speaking with um, who I've never physically met. Interesting. Uh, and so actually, you know, one of the most wonderful experiences there is is actually meeting people. Oh, you know, I've spoken, spent a lot of time with oh, online and, and discussed ideas. Um, and yeah, it is it, just it's lovely. And and I've made this comment at several people uh, at Airlife, but I think it's also worth worth mentioning here is um, everybody. I mean, artificial life for me, the community is um, there's something really special about it. And Certainly. You know, the, my, the words will fail me if I try to describe how and why. Um, I, I mean, yeah, there, there's just various reasons, but it's there was a lot of of this idea that you know people are just really nice in this community, and that was Without my question. feeling going. Well, it's not. The, it's the, the. I mean, certainly when I was at East Lansing, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. There were there were clearly these kind of a life luminaries that were poo pooing have, have been poo pooers, let's say, for many many years associated with the kinds of stuff that I was interested in. I had an opportunity actually to meet with. A number of them to actually go into their labs and uh, meet with their graduate students, many of whom moved on to Silicon Valley, having met me, and a, a variety of emotions where I was dealing also with the naysayers as well. So it, for me, it was a very strange relationship between the people that were very much on my side. You, you mentioned the the Sussex folk. I mean, they were like meeting them. I was just a turning point in my life because. Basically, the UK has always been a central hub for A-Life for me from Margaret A. Bowden's work on. But to get a sense that these were like-minded folk that actually had, you, you know, university accreditation was pretty amazing. For Anyway, look, I'm, I'm rabbiting on. I should let you get back to your... So who, who were the people that you really enjoyed meeting? Who were, you know, what were some of the ideas that were shared? Um, well, who, there's two questions there. Who were the people that I really enjoyed meeting? Um. So I, I will drop some names. Um, so th- there was one particular folk, um, Hiroki Sayama. Mm-hmm. Um, who, oh, yes. Yeah, is, is known so for, uh, seminal and also publishes a wide variety of stuff in PDF. So anyone can get access to yeah. the community. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and, and actually, if, if, we, if, we, if we end up talking about some of the COVID-19 modeling, I think his, wor- his name is worth discussing as well. Although he's not published stuff um, on it, I, you know, some of the stuff that he's done around COVID-19 modeling has been, has been unbelievable. Um, uh you may or may not know this. Uh, Craig Reynolds was mm-hmm. at the of conference. Course. Yeah, yeah, and, and what really surprised me um, when I had a quick look uh, back through his uh, publications was was how infrequently actually he publishes in, in artificial <laughs> life in the conference of the journal, um, which was bizarre to me considering how how important and how integral he's been in in the community. And Without question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning as well that. Um, uh, Craig Reynolds actually won the Lifetime Achievement Award. As he should. Was, was, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, you, you know, may, have, you, have you ever met Craig Reynolds? I've not. He's had a connection with Biota. So historically, I've been in contact with him. We've exchanged emails probably 15 to 20 years ago now. But yeah, like literally just so intuitive. I mean, I'm not sure if you've spent any time watching real flocks of birds. 
but you just get the, uh, the whole thing just is like it's one regard gobsmackingly simple another regard needs to be documented down so academics can actually move on yeah. from it could you talk a little bit about just i mean the breadth of his work what is he working on currently so actually, he presented something on uh, the core evolution of camouflage. I think that was actually the title Wonderful. of his talk. Uh, and the idea is um, uh, he has a couple of models, and they're you know simultaneously evolving uh, predators, and these are like convolutional neural networks and prey, uh, which are just sort of color textures that I think he has procedurally generated. And then what happens is the prey gets imposed on photos that he's actually taken Ooh. outside. He mentioned he just went outside and just took Ooh. photos over lockdown. They get imposed. Um, and then there's a tournament, right? So, so there is some... Um, uh, the, the goal of the predators, I guess, these CNN models, would be trying to detect the the press of these coloured textured circles mm-hmm. uh, that are imposed on these uh, pictures of nature, so leaves wow. or trees or something. And, you know, the top performing predator and prey then get evolved through genetic programming and so Certainly. on. It, it was it was really interesting because it's 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 such an I mean it, it almost feels quintessentially Craig Reynolds in that sense. Totally. Such, <laughs> such an an interesting take on what is a really simple problem. Well, totally. you know, intuitively you look okay. Well, you know, predators and prey, and people have done this hundreds, thousands of times. Without question. And he's he's come uh, and and uh, you know approached it through a different lens and mm. looked at it from a different angle. Which yeah, I thought that was just. Oh, that, that was just spectacular. Um, his presentation, I, I think, was was nice. It was it was, yeah, it was surprisingly surprisingly that everybody in their life is like this. But it was surprisingly modest, surprisingly humble. Um, mm-hmm. He seems like a really nice person. I've spoken to people. Well, I didn't get a chance to speak with him. Uh, I know nice. people who did, mm-hmm. and you know they said he's just a he's just a nice block. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just a super nice guy, and I. I I, I really enjoy that. And this is what I mean about the community being nice. And, and you know, that point that you said about the naysayers uh, that, that you might have come across in, in various <laughs> conferences. You know, I, I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing tenured professors who have been in the field 30, 40, 50 years Certainly. who are sat there diligently taking notes. Yes. Presentations from PhD students. Yes. And, it's you know, there is no hierarchy. There is no structure. There is no sense of, of egos being inflated. It's just... Every idea, because it is artificial life and because we don't have the answers to anything right now, we're still in this very divergent phase of trying to explore the, the, the solution space across all different disciplines. Someone's going to get it right. We don't know who, so we have to take well, I don't know the, the notion of getting it right is actually a thing. I mean, that's my view. I mean, we're talking about Craig Reynolds. You know, looking at his work with a contemporary of his, Carl Sims with the Blockies and... You know, these things, the whole notion of getting it right seems to be secondary to actually exploring. And I think that's what really strikes me about A-Life as a discipline is it's the the embodiment of the enjoyment of exploring rather than finding some notion of the truth out there. No, no, yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and actually, that's reminded me. Um, I mean, we can go, we can carry on about this, talking about this if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a special session and it was called... Uh, Vida Ludens, the playfulness in living systems, I think was the tagline. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea of, um, I mean, the only reason I mention it is, is because you've you've talked about this this exploring, but also we have spoken previously about, you know, this idea of, of playing, so role-playing games we've spoken mm-hmm. about in a, previous, um, in a previous episode. Um, and this was a special session organized by um, Olaf, Wid- uh, Olaf Wudkowski, 
uh, who is the current president of, of ISIL. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the, the the premise of it was. Um, so I'm just trying to remember here. Uh, the, the premise, I think, is is that air life is a very playful discipline, and sure. air life is a very playful people, largely because of its, you know, interdisciplinary nature. We immerse ourselves into different disciplines where we learn like new rule sets uh, specific to that area. Uh, we may have to suspend our judgment or our prior beliefs or rules that come from other disciplines in order Certainly. to play within new disciplines. And we do that so effortlessly and, and wonderfully. Um, and that it's not just about different disciplines uh, necessarily or scales of understanding, um, but actually like different instantiations of our work as well. Certainly. So You have to be a polymath in order to play in this field, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. it's not a forcing function, but you need to realise pretty soon... I found this, the, the conference I attended was there was a lot of discussion associated with learning biology and the difficulties in learning biology and how can we ever learn biology? Well, biology re- is a requirement for a lot of stuff. Like a knowledge of biology is so unbelievably helpful. And I think that's the thing with the true, you know, long in the tooth A-lifers is they've studied so many, in so many different areas, this whole notion of, of you know, fixed control over uh you know what the discipline is is just the antithesis of the discipline itself anyway sorry i'm digressing yeah no no i think that's exactly right and i think what what's also worth mentioning as well is is maybe this has happened previously but at least at the conference um this year um i I saw a couple of studies that actually um utilize things like virtual reality so now we've gone from not also not only just you know physical instantiations and simulated instantiations but also like this virtual or augmented reality as well mm. so it's about you know weaving ourselves through all these different ways that we can we can actually explore these types of thought experiments that we have and, and i think it's, it's incredibly creative the the ability to jump through those different realms and those different scales uh, i i think is incredibly playful you know mm. as you said so you talked a little bit i mean certainly i came to this thing i wrote a paper maybe decade and a half ago associated with how I came to artificial life through actually simulating bacterial infections in agar. And I think the whole, whatever it's called, code wars, the notion of kind of binary or, you know, early cellular automata, which are actually executing programs and how that maps onto viruses and bacterial infections and these kind of things always fascinated me. There have been gaps in the, I don't know, the history of a life that have missed some of these things. I think, Certain people have tried to unify it. What specifically did you see in that light at the conference? And specifically also talking about, obviously, what's happened with COVID as well. I mean, COVID has been a, an international phenomenon that has impacted the world in a variety of different ways. What was the impact of COVID on A-Life? Um, from, a, from a talk perspective and from a paper perspective, you mean... Well, just in general. I mean, yeah, let's start with yeah. the papers and the talks. Well, so it's interesting, actually. So uh, in, in previous years, uh, so I, I uh, co-organize a special session that's called Air Life and Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in previous years, we've actually um, received some, some really good papers related to COVID-19 modeling. Um, unfortunately, this year, we didn't receive uh, any of them. I, and I think people are done with it. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say that actually, because there was um, there's another special session that's sort of similar to the to the one that we run, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is agent based modeling for human Ooh. behavior, and Ooh. I think that attracted a couple of, of papers as well. Very nice. One of them, 
actually, and I will have to read the paper again because I missed the special session, but I believe um, it was incremental work on, on existing work, but it was about the notion of masking um, and how that would affect things like disease spread. I don't know if they called it COVID-19 specifically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was uh, it was about masking. And I think there was a few other papers around sort of uh, disease modeling as well. But I, I mean, maybe I can speak a little bit about historically what I've seen in the last couple of years. Certainly. Um, so again, I will make reference to uh, our special session, so artificial life and society, or air life and society, which is just you know a group of people that are interested in fundamentally addressing uh, planetary problems from a complex systems perspective. So we're using anything from computer simulations, uh, participatory strategies, and so on, um, and and particularly over COVID. Uh, of COVID, so 2021, we got three submissions uh, on COVID-19 modeling. And it was a re- it was a really nice because we could effectively have them all in the same session. Um, and what was really nice, and, and I will talk about them briefly, was that there were three papers that were looking at modeling on three different scales. So we had one, again, I'll make mention to Hiroki Sayama, um, who, who modeled it um, literally, uh, and the domain of interest there was just a university campus. Uh, and the way that he spoke about it was he was, I think, approached by one of the higher ups at the university over the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown. Um, uh, uh, and word to the effect of, look, Hiroki, I know that you're an expert in these, you know, in this area. Can you help us, you know, model something that helps us make a decision as to how and when to open campus again mm. uh, and his words and i'm not going to do it justice uh, you probably i mean it's, it's definitely worth with speak, speaking to him if you can at some point most definitely um you know and hiroko sayama is, is is an absolutely he's 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 so smart he's unbelievable um and you, you, know, you do feel like you're in the presence of someone who yeah you do get that i'm in the presence of true genius kind of sense yeah, of him. but but the humility <laughs> for, for him when Without we question. about this in 2020 and 2021 he he sort of took a step back and said you know i'm just i'm just a hobbyist i just play with these models and, and the idea from like you know having to develop simulations which have no tangible impact to all of a sudden having to create a model that mm. is going to inform decision making policies is 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 huge for him certainly um and but he he did it and i think it is um, i i don't want to um yeah i, I don't want to butcher the work that he did but i think it is is worth looking into firstly and and secondly i think it's it's worth speaking to him about it um he actually published a paper in 2021 not actually on the modeling itself but actually the utility of artificial life researchers in these types of problems. And, mm. and I think that, that was a really interesting paper. Um, we then had uh, Steen Rasmussen from mm-hmm. Denmark, who I think is a physicist. Um, Once was. He's, he's been in many things. I think he was a, <laughs> he was a microbiologist when I knew him. But he, okay. yeah, he, he's been through a long trajectory of possible job titles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for him, his scale was the entire country of Denmark. And mm. I, I believe he used... Uh, the like an SEIR, so you know, susceptible, exposed, infected, mm-hmm. recovered, susceptible model mm-hmm. uh, for the entirety of Denmark. Uh, I think his premise was basically that the government had got the modelling wrong, and that his a good model, premise to have. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that his model was better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had shot. He, he had basically presented it to various policymakers, uh, who, uh, I mean, to cut a long story short, you know, put the phone down on him and didn't want to speak with him. Uh, and then I think it transpired 
sometime later that his models were probably closer to reality what happened yes. so you know th- there is some learning there um and then there was a third one uh Emmerich Vier from the University of Oxford mm-hmm. I can't remember the details but it was a it was a comparison of, of various SIR models mm. that, you know various rates of spread and mortality rates and so on interesting um, so that was 2021 um, and what we did what was really nice in 2022 we invited everybody back uh-huh. we said look um you know COVID-19 has sort of you know it's it's on its way out it's not really this is what we thought at the time you know everything's dying down a little bit let's try and close the loop on some of these conversations because we so rarely get the opportunity to do so you know we make predictions we never actually get to see what those predictions look like and play out like so you know these researchers have made predictions they've they've made their models and, 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 and got some data let's invite them back onto a panel and let's see um you know, let's see what they've learned. Let's see what they got right. Let's see what they got wrong. Um, and that was really nice. But I believe it was Emmerich who said words to the effect. So, so I, we asked, you know, what did you, you know, what did you get wrong? What, what would you change now that that you know a little bit better? Now that you know, the life and, and the world has played out uh, over time. Mm. Uh, and he said, I mean, yeah, I, I will just summarize it. But words to the effect of, we got most things right. Uh, but we didn't account for human stupidity, right? Um, so, so, you know, <laughs> so, so the model's fine, but you know, the anti-vax and the anti-masking movement was just something that not only his model, but I think most models at the time just just couldn't account for. Mm. Uh, and, and I think there's there's a lot to be learned in just in that small statement there. I think. It is interesting. I wanted to raise the politics with of of COVID nineteen with you because it's something certainly in the US. I lived in San Jose through a period of with COVID and then moved to Las Vegas on a masked flight. It was very curious. Even checking into a hotel through deep COVID was a very strange experience where I just used my cell phone basically to do everything and waved at a distant human at one stage (laughs) of the process. So I had a distinct view with regards to COVID very much prefaced on San Jose, which just couldn't cope with anything. I mean, it really was a very strange environment and I was involved with the politics for a short period of time and got a sense that these were not only people that were distinctly dangerous, but also probably it was well just to keep as far away from as physically possible. Yeah. And they were ultimately making decisions like, let's release people that have COVID from the hospitals and let's just see what happens. You know, it isn't, it isn't just the anti-masking, anti-vaxxing, you know, naysayers that impacted the US. It's actually the nature of what bureaucracy is in this country and how it has failed at every at every juncture, how commercial medicine has failed at every juncture. I remember I paid a small fortune in tens of thousands of dollars a year, hundreds nearly of thousands of dollars a year in medical that my employer pays, but still that went into these things and they couldn't get, you know, virus tests for me quickly. <laughs> like the, whole, the whole nature of the thing was we put in so much money, so much time, so much energy and the institutions are what are failing fundamentally. Let's move the, you know, the anti-masking, anti-vaxxing people aside. So I was wondering, I mean, you have a very unique perspective as an A-life person and someone who's obviously experienced COVID um, kind of practically. I mean, I'm not sure what it was like in the UK, but a lot of people died. I mean, a lot of people died in the US as well. A lot of people died. So it has to be treated with some degree of gravity. What's what's your perspective with regards to COVID-19? Um. I, I, well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think 
It, it's really strange because I think the people who were making decisions at the time is just we don't have the right people in the right rooms in these conversations, mm. I think. And, and this is a point that Hiroki actually made and others have made is, is that, you know, we need people like airlifers who are in these rooms and, and, and presenting their models and their data and the counterfactuals and, and, and actually helping them account for all the different variables and things that might be playing into, in, into things like this spread. So, you know, that that was my perspective and that was my learning from from what Hiroki had presented mm. um from my own personal perspective uh well, i'm going to tread a little bit carefully because <laughs> i mean I, i've i've had covid three times now um, yeah and and, and unfortunately i i don't know I, I don't keep up with the science of the literature too much um uh, on this particular topic uh I do wonder if there are some people who respond sort of better or worse, or not not respond better or worse, but you know who who suffer slightly more certainly uh, than, than others. Long COVID is real; it's a real phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's really bizarre because I think, especially the first time, um, when long COVID, it, it wasn't really identified as a thing. Um, but you know, three or four months later, I'm, I'm still not feeling myself, and I'm like, oh, something's going on here. Um, so you, know, you, you do feel. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah, a little bit angry, I guess. Sometimes at the policy maker, you think you know we're not convinced that you might be doing the right decisions for the, and it's not in the best interest of the people. Um, but you know whether that is a that, whether that's malicious or whether that is just because they don't have the right people, like yeah. airlifers and, and, yes. and, and other expert <laughs> modelers in the rooms with these conversations, we just don't know. Yes. We just don't, and, and you know that might be a conversation for somebody who's who's better versed than me in, in the politics and behind the scenes, uh, but at least that's my take on it. Is is you know we have people like Hiroki who mm-hmm. who you know have the capabilities to uh, actually Steen is is also a really excellent example because you know his his model actually outperformed for for want of a better word those that the government was using at the time and it's like well we need to rely on the experts we need better people in these rooms certainly um and and actually identifying what the best people are i think is the difficulty i mean i i ran my own simulation work actually i I put together a youtube channel to explain some of that initially associated with the data that san jose was producing which was clearly wrong in fact they actually corrected the data (laughs) quite fabulously added you know 25 percent onto it and then 50 percent onto it because they just didn't have the infection rates right um, so, you know, being a simulator in this, I'm no, in no way part of this conversation. I mean, I was part of a community organization. And I attended a series of different meetings, which included, you know, people being murdered and various other things, which was just the culture of San Jose. But I realized that I was so far removed from the conversation and any expertise or experience I have and the, the nature of Steena Araki being part of that. I mean, these are real people that have real expertise. I mean, Stephen Rasmussen's, like I say, his resume flits between a wide variety of academic disciplines very quickly because he is truly a polymath. So, and Hiroki, as we've discussed as well. So the nature that these two people were part of being alienated from the conversation too seems to indicate that we need to, I don't know how we garner support or visibility to this field that we all kind of muddle in, but... I mean, surely that is just an indication that something is slightly off. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I also think, well, I completely agree with you, and, and I also, well, I also fear, I think that that we now live in a world where people are, 
you know, before COVID, most people didn't know what computer simulations were with respect to these types of models. And, mm. and now we live in a world where you know, a non-negligible negligible minority are probably still untrustworthy, uh, you know, are still not trusting these models because, not because the models are bad, but because the policymakers that were, that, that were um, uh, yeah, What's the word I'm looking for here? They uh, that we're implementing the policies based on <laughs> yeah, implementing the policies and, and inferring um, findings from these models uh, were not well informed, and 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 that's the real. I mean, thing. some of them were though. I mean, I think this is the difficulty here. I don't necessarily want to get too political on this, but I've been a, a follower of Anthony Fauci and in, in his, you know, just. From a perspective of actually understanding virology as much as any lay person probably should, and the dissection associated with the origins, and also just the, Anthony Fauci's behaviour was astonishing. The, the nature of the arrogant scientist in terms of damaging science is something that I've watched with Dawkins and watched with a number of folk. That really, the more arrogant scientists there are out there that just claim, you know, I have primary knowledge and none of you really know what you're talking about is always going to alienate a group of the population, which it did absolutely perfectly in the US. And as you noted, you know, fell into the anti-vaxxers, anti-mask people as well. But the scientists hold some responsibility as well. I mean, that's the beauty of, of talking about C and Hiroki specifically, is these are two people, well, more slightly more with Hiroki, but we'll talk about that maybe another time. Um, these are people who are so selfless and so the, these are the cultures and qualities of science that I want people to actually dwell upon, as opposed to, unfortunately, the nature of the kind of politics of science, which is what really came out certainly, well, universally, I think, with regards to COVID. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that that last point that you made is 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 really spot on. And again, I will make this. We could just name this the Hiroki podcast because I'm gonna I'm gonna mention his name again because. It is. It is one of those things that he he really emphasised. So just just to emphasise again that Hiroki, as far as I'm aware, has not published anything with respect to his modelling of this pandemic. Um, it, I, you know, it, in the context of, of which he was doing it, um, because the turnaround that that was required was so quick for him, and, and the fact that he had to engage in this modeling uh, at such a rapid rate and that people's lives were at stake and not just people's lives but people's lives in which you know in a in a compass that he was working uh, in and up so say he was you know a massive stakeholder and, and and had massive interest in in making sure this went right as well um and and so the point that that he made was you know, publications are great, and, and you know that's fine as a scientist. But actually, to be you know, our primary purpose as a scientist is to serve our communities and to serve society. And 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 removed of that, you know, what are we doing really? We're we're just metric chasing. And I think you know the work that he did with his COVID nineteen modeling um, was testament to that. You know, he he just got it done because he had the expertise and because that was the community in which he was. Um, he was embedded in uh, and you know I, I think like you said i think a scientist and a science that, that's something that we can certainly learn from we don't have enough time today unfortunately to cover nearly all the topics that we thought about <laughs> raising at the start which i think essentially unfortunately the nature of this podcast is that we end up with a topic list that is far greater than we can actually cover psychedelics was something we were going to touch on obviously the the, the whole nature of 
theism and artificial life, I think, is something that is going to be a coming up topic. So please, folks, stay yeah. involved in this podcast because they're coming up. I did want to throw out one particular curveball associated with the kind of A-Life developer in the street, so to speak. As happens on an annual basis, I download Apple's uh, latest you know, operating systems and compiler software. And every so often, in fact, with a certain degree of frequency, things break with regards to my simulations. We've talked briefly. I've talked more with, with other folks about London 1940. But there's certain parts of software that really need to work for London 1940 to work. And unfortunately, this week, Apple broke uh, through its compiler software, which is unfortunately the most fundamental way to access this and there were various optimizations and other things that they did i had to actually break the software out and uh, make it more into a, a self-fulfilling library which i was able to actually get to run um on the latest compiler actually now outputting the internals of buildings for london 1940 thankfully so i did want to throw that out there as a topic any any final thought Imi, before i begin my sunday morning and you end your sunday <laughs> um no i i guess the one thing I just want to make another mention about very quickly about the the conference because we spoke a lot mm. about you know about consciousness and mind and phenomenology, um, but I just really want to want to emphasize as well that some of you know the legacy approaches that that we might consider to be you know quintessentially artificial life um, still haven't gone away. So, mm-hmm. so cell, cell, like cellular automaton, for instance, was you know whether it was just my perception or whether this is you know the reality there are always throwbacks at these conferences i mean yeah. the blocky walkers cellular automata you just like well i could i could be at an a-life conference in the early 80s well not that there were any but yeah. you know what i'm saying <laughs> and i do i do wonder whether you know um models or systems like lenia have, have made ca more interesting for folk you know with the continuous ca and, and such um and the fact that it looks graphically beautiful as well visually mm. appealing um but no yeah ju- just to say i i think Air life is is evolving and broadening in its scope and, and the disciplines that it's encapsulating, uh, but I don't think, from my perspective, that, that some of those you know legacy or classic methods have, have gone anywhere yet. Very good, Amy. It's been a pleasure as always. I don't know when we're next actually recording. We probably need to sync our calendars and work out sure. when that's going to happen. But ah, oh, we've got to touch on psychedelics. We've got to touch on theism. We've got to touch on all these seminal topics. One thing I wanted to throw out about psychedelics, having children in your late 40s is as psychedelic an experience as you could possibly imagine for a variety (laughs) of reasons. Anyway, I'll throw that out there for the psychedelic discussion. Awesome. (laughs) I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you very much, Tom. Bye-bye.